The first generation that understands its distinctions and lays them down for the sake of mission just produces the next generation that doesn't understand the distinctions and then produces the next generation which thinks which has that those no distinctions, distinctions exactly right. in fact are are to be avoided and mm -hmm. rejected. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Great. Doing great, Nick. Were either of you contacted about the head chaplain vacancy at Harvard? I didn't even know it was open, but apparently literally no Christians or even theists were available. Well, there was a Christian scientist. I think that was there, but uh, oh, okay. no, no, I, I normally do check the agnostic um, uh, job boards, um, you know, having spent so long um, on them as a minister in the Episcopal church. And then I, um, <laughs> I, uh, um, yeah. So it's just been a while since I checked. <laughs> just stand for too much for that kind of job. That's right. That's right. Oh man. Uh, no, it's a really fascinating article though. Did you read it? I talked about it in my classes last weekend at the church class that, uh, he says, you know, we don't look to God for answers. We yeah. are each other's answers. I was wow. like, oh, that's, that's, that's really depressing. depressing. I mean, it's yeah. presumptuous and depressing. And it's like, yeah. you go sit around, um, uh, you know, and look at each other and say this, well, I guess, I guess we're each other's best hope. Um, that's like you know. how Dante defines hell, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we are each other's best hope. Good uh, Lord. Well, I, somewhere along there. And then we have frozen, we're, half of us are frozen up to our necks. <laughs> so that's, that's probably the level he's talking about there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, can you get out of this? It's not so bad. It's not that cold. Like, right. <laughs> um, Lord have mercy. Um, on the opposite end of the alleged theological spectrum from the new chaplain at Harvard, um, it's hard to be in Christian circles these days, whether that's in print or social media or on the news, and not hear the word evangelical used, usually in a derogatory way. Evangelicals are said to be all sorts of things, misogynists, nationalists, Trump voters, etc. Uh, they're rarely said to be what the word actually means, which is gospelers. I even saw on Twitter today, Someone saying that it, quote, goes without saying that Thomas Aquinas, who lived in the 13th century, wasn't an evangelical. And the implication was, thank goodness. Now, whatever you think of Aquinas, it's clear that this word needs some help. Or maybe the word itself doesn't need help, but people need help understanding it. So we wanted to take this episode to do some rehabilitation of evangelicals and evangelicalism, probably talk a bit about evangelicalism's place within Anglicanism and its so-called three streams and like always we'll see where the conversation goes it never quite goes where we expect jay do you want to start what is an evangelical where did that word come from well the definition of it obviously is under dispute uh but the word itself from euangelion meaning good news um is just a word from the greek bible I and mean, it was actually a word from antiquity i mean it just meant um good news you could have the the good news of caesar's proclamation you could have the good news of a of a announcement of a wedding i mean it was it's just a greek word meaning good news and it was used by the writers of the New Testament, um, most notably in the titles of their good news accounts of the life of Jesus in the Evangelion, Kata Markon, Matthias, I mean, the, the, the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so um, at the time of the Reformation, um, when the Greek New Testament came back into uh, wide usage uh, on account of Erasmus and Luther and a variety of other historical um, sort of events that took place, 
the early uh, preachers of this new uh, rediscovered uh, gospel, good news, simply considered themselves to be gospelers, you know, um, evangelicals. Uh, and, you know, this is what uh, Luther self-consciously, you know, to call him a Protestant, uh, to call some of even Cranmer, for that matter, a Protestant is somewhat anachronistic because this was a pejorative levied against people who continued to protest after the uh, pronouncements of the um, Council of Trent in part. But um, they would have under them, understood themselves, uh, Luther and sort of the continental reformers would have understood themselves as, as gospelers, as evangelicals. Cranmer would have described himself in part as following the evangelical teaching of the continent, you know, following coming from the new gospelers uh, themselves uh, from the, the Bible. And um, even down to this day in Germany, um, you know, in certain parts of the world, you have the Evangelische Kirche, you know, the evangelical church. Uh, which, of course, has all sorts of uh, various connotations and implications uh, culturally, uh, depending on where it's used. But fundamentally, it's a word that simply comes from the Bible, meaning good news. And that's why um, I and I know you guys to a certain degree also have been um, uh, reticent to to jettison it. Uh, simply because despite the connotations, it's actually a biblical word that means something very important and is um, and is sort of central to our understanding of what we see ourselves to be as preachers, the, the heralders of the Evangelion, the good news of God and Christ. I mean, yeah, I mean, as a, as a as a word, I I I think that over time it just began to refer to people who were in line with the five souls of the Reformation, you, you know, Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia, um, uh, Solus Christus, and um, Fide Leo Gloria. And that's, that's, those are the five things that, five pillars, I guess, of, of reformer, the reformers' uh, objection to Rome. And when I first became a Christian, when I was, I think, 26, it, it was, that's how I understood the term. And that's how, that's how R.C. Sproul explained the term to me on the radio. And, and so I, you know, from that moment on, I said, okay, I'm an, I'm an evangelical. Um, right. And it, it wasn't until recently that it's become, it's come to mean, you know, a white supremacist Trump voter. And, and so, uh, but, but I think traditionally it's had a really positive, a positive uh, color to it. Yeah, I I ran into the debate uh, back in college also a little bit from a a little bit different perspective, because as I was being, um, as it were, grafted into the Anglican tradition, um, part of the seminary that Nick and I went to, we speak often of uh, Trinity School for Ministry, was in the middle of this kind of um, sort of defining in the 60s, 70s, and 80s of what it meant to be an evangelical, even over against reformed. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to, to think that evangelical and reformed are basically synonyms, Matt, and we can talk about that too if you want. Um, but I know that there are many people, um, or not many, but there's, there are people that wouldn't be so comfortable tying it to the solas uh, so explicitly because under the banner of evangelicalism, you have um, people who are who are self-consciously not reformed, um, you know, which is, I think, a problem. But we could talk. Uh, but I don't know. That's that's well, let me before I get there, yeah. though, let me just say my my in, involvement in it was this this sort of uh, emergence of evangelicalism as a um in America as a uh, cultural phenomenon, which I'm not saying, I mean, I think Christianity should have cultural implications, obviously, but that it was um, being defined in part uh, by what has come to be known as the Bevington Quadrilateral. A guy named David Bevington wrote a book um, in 1989. It came out called Evangelicalism in Modern Britain, colon, a history from the 1730s to the 1980s. It's quite audacious, uh, uh, a sort of undertaking. 
But nevertheless, he had sort of laid out four parts of it, which at least as far as I have been working with it, my adult life have come to be sort of the, the, the at least the, the touch points from which people talk about is the biblicism, uh, crucicentrism, conversionism, and activism. So the, the focus on the scriptures, the atoning work of Christ, the need for personal conversion, and then social activism as a result of these things were sort of the four marks that he had of sort of British evangelicals, which then ultimately affected um, and influenced American evangelicals. And so uh, we could talk about those four uh, if you want, but but at least just as we're talking about how we got into the discussion, the debate that was happening at the time, which 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 continues down to this day, is how exclusive and how narrowly defined these four terms are. Because, you know, even going back to your argument or your mention of Thomas Aquinas, Nick, um, you know, biblicism, crucicentrism, conversionism, and activism are fine terms insofar as they go, but you can shoehorn a lot of different uh, confessional identities into those four things, which has been the problem for, um, you know, 40, 30 plus years now is that you could have someone say, well, I'm a, um, you know, Eastern Orthodox and I believe in the Bible, crucicentrism convert, you know, Roman Catholic, I'm a Methodist, I'm a Lutheran, I'm a, you know, reform. Like this has been the difficulty is that the, the terminology um, is fine insofar as it goes, but of course the the heat is always around the edges about who defines what and how uh, stridently that's um, policed, as it were, or at least fenced. And so that's where we are today, is that, you know, a, the, the Anglican church can be understood as broadly evangelical in the sense that we, I would, I would be hard pressed to find a minister that wouldn't for the good news. I mean, that would be a hard hard sell. I'm actually for the bad news. That's what I'm, I'm for the, uh, you know, but, um, but we would definitely want to dig down into that a little bit about um, how do you understand your, um, the centrality of the scriptures? How do you see the, um, the cruciformity of your theological profession? How do you understand the, the role of conversion in the life of faith? You know, these are things that this is where the discussion lies. And this is the one that has been going on within Anglicanism and, and in American evangelicalism for that matter, for well, certainly as long as I've been alive um, and, and it doesn't look like it shows any signs of abating anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, going back to, I mean, I, I don't know that I would, I don't know that I would embrace the Bevington definition there. I think, I think, I, I think the, this five solas are broader than you're, than you're suggesting. I don't think it, I don't think it necess- necessitates a reformed perspective. I think a Wesleyan could embrace the five solas. I think a, a Baptist could, <laughs> can, uh, from the Anabaptist tradition, well, can what embrace type the of, five solas. What type of so, Wesleyan, I mean, like quasi-fide? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, okay. But I mean, they, I think they would self-identify as people who, who say, yeah. yeah, we believe in sola fide, right? So I, mean, I think, I think, I think the five solas are pretty broad. They go beyond, you know, reformed Calvinism or anything like that. They, they, they are, they're pretty much widely held by, by orthodox evangelical orthodox people <laughs> who would call themselves evangelical i think would affirm the five souls i don't know i mean i don't know that i affirm all of the uh, i think the, the the bevington uh quadrilateral is 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 really sketchy i mean i, I hadn't heard of it before uh, this, is, uh, this is a new thing to me and the reason i think it's sketchy is just because of what you articulated it's so broad i mean really who what christian is not for conversion what christian doesn't say the bible is well that is has great. been the, that has been the argument again yeah I and mean, it's just it's too broad five solas narrowed down okay you can't be an evangelical roman catholic right well you, you can't be an evangelical he's orthodox back, he's pushing back in a certain sense to um kind of the i would say the hackney um 
critique of uh, sort of institutionalized Erastian churches where you're baptized into it. And, you know, it's like, well, of course I'm, I'm X, Y, Z Christian because I was, I was, you know, what else would I be? I was born into this, you know, so that, that over against, there's always been this sort of this, 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 this kind of effective um, energy behind the, um, the quote unquote evangelicals all the way back. I mean, I would argue back to the time of the, um, the, the Puritans. I mean, back to the prayer book, back to the Reformation, the, you know, people that were, they were arguing the necessity for conversion, for outward and sort of uh, public uh, profession of um, fidelity with Christ as the mark of a true believer over against someone who we may have concerns over. And I think that's, that's kind of what they're pointing at. Now, I agree with you. I mean, I don't, I think that that's, um, there's a longer conversation we had there, but that's, I think that's where the distinction was being drawn is that you had, I mean, particularly looking like even the Anabaptists back at the time of the Reformation, you know, people who said, well, our infant baptism doesn't count because that wasn't, um, you know, a, a, a conscious profession. And so you had this sort of energy uh, that, you know, I think in the proper sphere, as we've learned from Ashley Knoll and certain other Reformation scholars, the, the sort of uh, firing up and flaming of the affections, you know, in a biblical way is a very um, biblical and a very uh, Christian thing to do. Uh, but at the same time, I think that there's always been this tension between the the sort of the true believers um, and the non. And so you get, of course, you know, the pejorative associations with evangelicals throughout the ages as being the quote unquote born against, you know, or the people that found Jesus or the, you know, the Jesus freaks or the Jesus movement type people. And again, I have a lot of sympathy with those people and resemble a lot of those remarks. So I'm not that upset about that type of uh, uh, language. And yet that's what I'm saying. Sociologically, I think that's some of the lines that were being drawn, but I definitely agree with you. I mean, I read a book, Al Mohler, wrote a uh, article which i'm trying to remember the name of but at the very least he he this is where i first ran into a sustained critique of the quadrilateral and it wasn't like you're saying that there was anything necessarily wrong with the words uh definition in of themselves as touch points but he used the image of a bounded uh set you know he said that it wasn't just the boundaries uh, or a center bounded set it wasn't just that they had an it's that this was like the limits to evangelicalism but we actually needed to have some core of each of those that we would then use um, to define how we understood ourselves as evangelicals. And so, again, that's where you get a little bit deeper into it. The what does solo, you know, what does biblicism mean? You know, what is because um, I remember having a conversation with a with a very kind and, and thoughtful bishop uh, back when I was in the Episcopal Church, who I had some significant disagreements with and yet had deep affection for. And um, we were going through our discussion at our former church where Nick and I served about um, how we understood the scriptures with respect to their authority and particularly with and in regards to uh, human sexuality. And I remember never forget him simply saying, well, I certainly believe in the authority and infallibility of scripture. Also, we just have different understandings of what that looks like. And I said, well, I think that's uh, clear uh, in the way that we, in the, the places where we land on, you know, diametrically opposed uh, positions on this question um, but but to, to say that that there wasn't that idea uh, permeating, you know, these, like I said, diametrically opposed positions is, is false. And so I think you're right, Matt. I think that's that's sort of the problem is that evangelical is, um, you know, is as what people sort of 
think it is, uh, define it as, and then propagate it as, um, you know, for better or worse. And so I'm not, I mean, I'm surprised you haven't heard of it just because you're such a man of letters and well-read. And, um, but at the same time, I know that in the, in the, all of the fog of incense and things, it might've, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. like, maybe if I chanted it, uh, you would understand it. Uh, and the first of the quadrilateral is. <laughs> I, I do think it's worth mentioning. We've already <laughs> talked about the reformation a lot, including, um, the five solas and Cranmer and Luther. And I think it's easy to miss the connection between scripture as written and the use of words like transliterations of evangelical euangelion in the scriptures and think of it as a reformational creation when the truth is, and you guys can say more about this, that the, the reason that we seem to hang our hats on the Reformation so much is the Reformation's rediscovery of the things that were happening in the scriptures. The the teaching, not that they came up with, that was new, that that they they brought to the surface again, that was in the scriptures already. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, you go back and read um, read, read the Reformers. They, none of them thought they were doing a new thing. None of them thought we're, we're creating this new church um, out of nothing. They all thought they were recovering both, both the, the, the scriptures and, and the fathers read, read Calvin on, in his response to those who are saying, this is a departure from tradition. He, he goes back and says, no, this is, this is not a departure from, from, from tradition. We are, we are embracing, uh, we are embracing the, uh, streams of tradition that have been jettisoned by, um, by, by Rome. And, uh, you know, the, and it's true. I mean, you, you go back and you look at, at, I remember we had a guy who uh, was coming to work, was going to one of our student groups that we had on on the campus locally, and he was really he ultimately did go go to Rome, but but part of his reasoning was well you know the Roman Catholic Church doesn't just blossom out 500 years ago it's been there since the days of the apostles and um and so i had to you know i, I tried I, I unsuccessfully but i had to go back and show you know that's not quite true i mean Ro right. what rome what rome calls tradition is what she receives from the fathers and what she receives from the fathers are only those, those things the fathers say that are inconsistent or that are consistent with her present teaching so they don't yeah. really it's not it's not it's not just a a, a, a direct line from the unanimous voice of the fathers to the present day Roman Catholic church. It's the present day Roman Catholic church defining what tradition is in accordance right. with her present theology. Um, whereas I think the reformers were much better at this. So they, they were able to say, okay, well, we don't agree with, you know, Augustine here. Um, but this stream, this, this thought about grace is, is something we see consistently from the apostles all the way to the present day. And this That's is right. what we're going to, we're going to hit on. So let's say uh, evangelicalism at least uh, the reform. The one reason to embrace the, the reformers is is because you're also then embracing the great tradition. That's right. Not, you know, well, and this is and, and this is why it's so intellectually uh, vapid, in my opinion. The rejection of the reformers as a um, sort of faithful exponents of the fathers, because you have to deny or you have to be ignorant of the fact that you know almost to a person, 
um, the particularly the English reformers, if not just the continental also, were uh, what's part of the new humanists, you know, the new learning. Like their entire motto was ad fontes, back to the sources. And they had been inundated with original patristic <clears throat> and Greek manuscripts that had come um, uh, westward and were so inspired by the deep reading of the early church fathers that that was initially before, before Luther's uh, breakthrough with respect to preaching in the, in the theology. Uh, the English Reformation in turn could have very easily just simply gone back to um, the Orthodox Church. I mean, that was how deeply enmeshed they were in the fathers. And so when you had this marriage of the deeply um, appreciative new learning of the insights of the church fathers with the scriptural witness to justification by faith alone, you had this explosion that was um, the, well, at least the English Reformation, uh, and most notably in our Book of Common Prayer. I mean, this is where I'm, I always go back to uh, Professor uh, Gillis Harp, um, who's at um, Grove City College, who's a friend of the, um, at least a friend of a friend of the show. I don't know if this <laughs> is, he's a, but he has written extensively about this, and he's drawing on work, you know, more contemporary work by people like the Reverend Dr. Ashley Knoll, who is a friend of the show, uh, Dermot McCulloch, who wrote the sort of massive um, books, uh, doorstop, uh, you know, volume on Cranmer's uh, biography. And, and the, the modern, the modern um, appreciation of Cranmer is totally uh, revamping his appreciation, uh, the appreciation of his sophistication in the minds of, of actual academics, because what people are drawing from, even going from an article that Gillis, uh, Dr. Harp wrote about um, the three streams, which we can talk about later, but he's saying that, you know, Dom Gregory Dix wrote this famous infamous book called The Shape of the Liturgy, right? And in it, he is very pejorative of the early prayer book because he thinks that it's not sufficiently patristic and sort of in touch with the great tradition, right? And so he has a pejorative statement about the 15th 52 prayer book in, in particular, where he says it's the most thoroughgoing attempt um, to put into liturgical form the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which he thought was a bad idea because it didn't have the you know, quote unquote shape of the liturgy. Well, that was the one that won the day in many quote unquote a Anglican evangelical world um, as being unsophisticated, not in touch with the fathers. You know, Cranmer was just sort of this guy with a trapper keeper, like running around and papers flying everywhere and didn't have a lot of thought about what he was actually doing. Whereas what is being actually revealed is that not only was he deeply in touch with the reformers, he was deeply in touch with the work and theology of, uh, I mean, uh, the fathers. But most notably, he was in touch with the work and theology of St. Augustine, which, of course, Luther, as a good Augustine monk, also mined to our, uh, all to our benefit. And that the marriage of all of these streams of thought produced the Book of Common Prayer, which, if we actually appreciate as not simply a historical document, but as a, as a Protestant evangelical witness to a liturgical proclamation of the good news of God in Christ, well, then we would have a lot better appreciation for the, the patronage that we have inherited as Anglicans, as opposed to sort of saying, yes, yes, you know, have it all these, these people in the past, but really they were insufficiently um, sort of enamored by the, the mystery, the perichoresis and the great tradition. And so that's what we need to recover. It's like, well, there is a, there is a great tradition you can go and recover, but, um, but to argue that somehow you know it more or closer to it or can sift through it better than Hooker and Cranmer and John Jewell and all of the sort of early uh, English reformers is just laughable. And so, you know, that's been part of the problem that I've faced my entire 
adult uh, life and vocation in the church is that when we go back and appeal to the formularies, you know, the book of homilies, the prayer book, the 39 articles, the things that, that ostensibly lay out the boundaries of our evangelical Anglican witness, oftentimes people either meet with blank stares, like, you know, I hadn't even considered um, consulting those works, or um, they're just dismissed out of hand. And I think, you know, that's, that's a judgment on all sorts of things, but it's also a recipe for continued confusion, if not um, disillusionment as we go forward. Because if we can't agree upon where our, um, where our bounded set lies, where the, where the center lies and then where the, where the, out, the, the, um, the, the, the boundaries are, well, then we're going to just see what happens in ACNA, what we saw happen in the Episcopal Church and what happened in the mainline churches is that eventually um, the church becomes effectively congregationalist in whatever it is the rector thinks um, that's what Anglicanism is. And um, whoever can produce, reproduce the most will ultimately be the, the victor. It's like, well, that's a vision for it, one that we're hoping to avoid uh, because you've know, been there once, you know, shame me once, um, you know, fool me once, whatever, shame on, whatever that is. Don't fool do me it once, shame Don't on me. Don't do it me. again. That's right. <laughs> no, fool I me. said it wrong too. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Well, I was just thinking of Motley Crue and once bitten, twice shy. <laughs> That's all I could think about. So because most of the, most of my life, there's a Motley Crue song running underneath the, uh, <laughs> that, underneath. Well, the, I think that, that fear of just being confused about our identity and who we are as a, as a denomination or as a, as a tradition is why people object to the three streams idea. The three streams idea, if you don't know about it, is, uh, is that the Anglican tradition is a confluence of <clears throat> charismaticism, evangelicalism, and Anglo-Catholicism. So uh, those, those three streams, I, this was something that has been taught, and I think it's even been encoded in several provincial documents. Um, those three streams come together to, pr to produce a mighty you know, roaring flood. Um, and, and so, and that's many, the many, a, many a worthy craft has been uh, right. destroyed on the rocks of those three streams. <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, it's interesting though, I, I, what I, what I, what it, what's happened is you're right. It's been, what, what's happened has been a watering down of any kind of sense that we have a foundation um, right. in the formularies. It, it does seem that of the three streams, the one that's pervaded the most has been the charismatic stream. That it's that it's made headways within the evangelical stream and within the Roman and the uh, Anglo-Catholic stream. You can find Anglo-Catholics who, who, who think of themselves as more charismatic, and you can find evangelicals who think of themselves as charismatic. Um, and you can just find straight on charismatics. But that that stream seems to have been the one that's being being the most ha having been the most uh, influence, at least in the. 90s and 2000s and even evangelical Anglican, Anglicanism in the United States. Um, and then, you know, uh, add to that, well, I get one of the reasons why, two of the reasons why there's a problem with that is that two of the streams, charismaticism and Anglo-Catholicism, do in some ways seem to exceed uh, or go beyond what our formularies allow. So charismaticism, some would say, uh, cuts against our formularies because uh, Article Six, uh, the articles in our in our thirty nine articles that deal with the scriptures, uh, don't seem to embrace the idea of an ongoing kind of revelatory or 
uh, 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 God still speaking through prophets and other means to his church, um, which could add, which could um, add to the law and bind conscience with something else beside the scriptures. That's the, that's the way, that's the way the charismatic stream seems to, to, to conflict with our, um, with our formula. When it conflicts, I mean, we when can it talk conflicts. about it. It doesn't, doesn't always to. do that. Right. Yes. Right. It doesn't have to, but, but no, that's when it sure. does, that's when it does. That's the criticism. And the Anglo Anglo Catholic one, of course, I mean, uh, if you, if, if you're interested in this, uh, I recommend you know, going and reading about the Tractarians and how, um, and how Newman and Pusey and the others tried to reinterpret the articles to fit within a theological framework, which was consistent with a lot of what Rome teaches about justification and grace and authority and everything else. Uh, so it was, it was more of a, a revisionist kind of work, deconstruction and revision work on the part of the, the Anglo-Catholics. And so that kind of flips with their formularies there. So saying we're all, we can just kind of shove all these streams together in one rushing flood is it, it, to do that. You have to either knock off the distinctives of all three of them um, or do away with the formularies. That's right. Well, and I think, I mean, this is, this is the problem it's because, you know, and we've talked about this before and, and we actually resemble this um, sort of the, the manifestation of this as we've talked about uh, in your church uh, tradition, Matt, um, in particular, being on the sort of higher spectrum of the, of the sort of the up the candle, as some people say. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of difference between aesthetics and sort of right. understanding of the the liturgical reality of a church and actual theological foundations, you know? And so we said before, I mean, the difficulty in classic uh, quote unquote streams of evangelicalism, for instance, over against um, Anglo-Catholicism with respect to like soteriology, for instance, you know, is, is, is salvation imputed um, or is it infused, you know, do the sacraments, are they, are they visible signs or are they actual means of grace? You know, these, I mean, again, we, we can parse these, these words and I have spent, and we'll all spend a lot of time talking about and writing about these things, but that there are legitimate um, disagreements. And even as, again, back to Dr. Harp's piece, um, in certain cases, irreconcilable differences at the foundational theological convictions of some of these quote unquote three streams have to be minimized for the sake of, well, I guess mission is the word they would use now, or uh, we're seen as being sort of divisive or somehow um, not providing a unified witness to the world. Now, you know, here's the problem is that when you, you know, the first generation that understands its distinctions and lays them down for the sake of mission just produces the next generation that doesn't understand the distinctions and then produces the next generation, which thinks which has those no distinctions, distinctions. Exactly. Right. In fact, are, are to be avoided and mm -hmm. rejected, which is that's where we're living now is that, um, you know, you look at the 70s, 80s and 90s in the US and you had, I mean, I've even been reading a book recently on the history of Christianity today. And there was this argument even back then that there was this uh, melting pot of quote unquote evangelicalism that was represented by Christianity today. And there were some voices um, who were seen as too strident and too divisive who were saying, you know, we really shouldn't try to um, uh, minimize the difference between, oh, I don't know, let's say a Calvinist and an Arminian, you know, getting together or a Pado-Baptist and a Credo-Baptist. And we should be able to work together, but we don't have to downplay and denigrate the actual theological distinctives. And that voice lost to the now prevalent argument, which is that those distinctions not only are meaningless, they're in fact in and of themselves to be avoided as divisive. 
Uh, which leaves us, of course, um, at the winds of whoever's the most, uh, well, charismatic in a sociological way, uh, you know, who's the sophist. You know, we go back to the sophist. I've been reading another book on. Um, Hold on a second. Plato's- you should you should clarify real quick that you're referring to Christianity Today, the publication. It's an odd sentence to say that you're reading a book about the history of Christianity today. Oh, right. But <laughs> I'm reading a book today about the history of a magazine <laughs> called uh, Christianity Today, but I read it yesterday, actually, uh, in my tomorrow. At any rate, I'm also reading a book today about Plato's, uh, or I was listening to a podcast, to be honest, about um, Plato's uh, argument with the sophists, right? And this is a persistent argument. So the sophists were people who simply were the best, as Paul runs into in Corinth, uh, you know, the, the best, most eloquent, the best orators, the, the flashiest and most well-spoken. And you basically could pay them to argue uh, 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 one side or the other. It didn't really matter. You know, they're kind of like um, like uh, high-powered lawyers, you know, like, and again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with them, except when they're um, denigrating the uh, whole idea that there is fundamentally something true that they're arguing for or against. And I think this is where, you know, even the whole theological enterprise, like I was talking to Liza, my wife, a couple of days ago about just we were reflecting on how it was that I made it through this uh, PhD process or doctoral process in, in Germany, not the least of which I had to dot all the I's and cross all the T's for like 600 footnotes, which if you know me is like, I mean, that's about 580 more than, than I would like to have done. And it was like the level of argumentation and the persistence of that argument it seems to be like a world gone, like a, like a, like a, like a previous life, like that where someone would, I mean, not just me, but where anyone would sit down and say, let's, let's have a long extended prolonged argument that has agreed upon sources of authority that has, um, you know, agreed upon, um, you know, in goals that we're looking for and will actually decide for or against certain ideas, you know, in our modern or postmodern or whatever we're saying um, world, where it's simply, you know, it's like a, it's like a Nietzschean uh, thunderdome, you know, like two ideas enter and one idea uh, leaves. Um, and whoever's is the loudest, the strongest, and the most has the most likes and followers is the one that wins. And that seems to be what is happening in the ACNA. Um, but of course, we're just one little subset of broader evangelicalism. And that seems to be what is winning the day. And so again, I don't know how to answer it necessarily, except to say that, the again, the patronage that we have is that we, I mean, I, I swore, I'm looking at my ordination certificate right now, like I swore a fidelity and allegiance to the um, faith as it has been handed down through the formularies, the prayer book, the 39 articles and the articles, the instruments of unit, you know, the, um, the, um, the, the you know, I can't read the small prayer. Anymore. <laughs> anyway, the point is, I know for a fact that um, that these are the sources of authority that at the very least I put myself under. Um, and so if we're going to begin talking about what Anglicanism is and how do we understand it, well, that seems to be the place to begin um, and end for, for evangelical Anglicans. Um, and the fact of the matter is that the three streams, while insofar as a descriptive um, model are very helpful, I mean, I don't have any problem with the Catholicity of the church. You know, there's this sort of red herring that um, evangelicals just denied the um, the history of the church. Like, well, maybe some do, but I've never met an Anglican. I've never met the lowest church Anglican I've ever met has never denied the fact that they are uh, part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, even though, interestingly enough, the reformers took out sanctus from the Latin understanding of the um, from the Latin uh, recitation of the creed. So if you go back to some of the earliest um, 
creed, you go back to some of the earliest uh, writings of the creed from the reformers, it was just the one Catholic and apostolic church, because they said the one thing we know about this church is it's not holy, <laughs> which I thought was really interesting. But at any rate, you know, you look at the Catholicity of it, no one's denying. You look at the the, the reality of the charismatic emphasis, which is a, a genuine heartfelt, you know, change of affections, which, which produces um, oftentimes emotional response to the gratitude of the love of God in Christ. You know, I mean, that's a wonderful thing. Nobody I've ever met says you, you should actually have a stone cold reaction to the preaching of the gospel. And that's actually the mark of true faith or something like this. The the Catholicity of it's beautiful. The charismatic reality of it is something to be cherished, but it has to be in the groundwork. I mean, in the boundaries of the, under the authority of scripture and has to be uh, submitted to the authority has to be, um, to be, uh, you know, read, marked, learned, inwardly digested from the scriptures or else it threatens to overrun the banks if we're going to use the um, the, yeah. the stream analogy. And that's what we see. And that's what we've been seeing. And, and the argument that somehow this is a non-missional or sort of um, sort of ancillary argument to the to the the to the detriment of the furthering of the church is just empirically false when you look at the actual churches that are growing, that are clear about what they believe, that are gracious in their disagreements with those with whom they have disagreements, and are courageous and confident in the proclamation of what they actually believe. Like Those are the ones that are inspiring and encouraging and drawing people to them, not these ones that are just everything to everyone. Yeah, I mean, I like the distinction you're making between the three streams as a descriptor, like a, that, that, that actually is what the ACNA is right now, versus a prescription. I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what we should be, um, whereas I think people often merge those two and it becomes a description and also a this is who we are and this is who we should always be um, and a prescription for future things. But I do think, I mean, I think you're onto something with, with the idea that um, the embrace of the three streams model and the resulting... Uh, the emphasis on the formularies does create the impression on the part of those who are coming into Anglicanism that we're really vague when it comes to doctrinal boundaries. And I think, and, and we've talked about this before, but I wonder if that's one of the things that attracts uh, deconstructing uh, ex-evangelicals yes. to the ACNA. Um, <clears throat> hey, I can come here. I can, I can pretend that I'm, I'm part of a great tradition by wearing robes, lighting candles and, and ringing bells and chanting chants and all that kind of thing. And I can go on a journey of self, self-discovery and theological exploration with the vaguest of outlines and boundaries. We're constantly um, told how uh, big a tent it is. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, the three streams model as a prescription may have been instrumental and so eroding away our doctrinal standards that we have the woke insurgents that we have right now. Interesting. No, I agree with you totally. I mean, I'm, I'm just, I'm just looking here again at this article by Gillis Harp, which I recommend to you. If you Google Gillis Harp, H-A-R-P and um, we'll link to streams, it on, we'll yeah, link to it on Stan Firm. I'd never heard this. He says the original title of the Articles of Religion, the 39 articles, included a significant description of their larger purpose, quote, for the avoiding of diversities of opinion and for the establishing of consent <laughs> touching true religion. <laughs> like, like, let's put that back up yeah, right. um, on the uh, church. Because I think, um, you know, again, this is where the, the frustrating thing I have um, that I have been um, arguing my entire life is that there's this, um, I don't know if it's a generational thing. I don't know if it's a, if it's a temperament thing, but, but it's a thing where people um, hear sort of land 
landing the plane and theological conviction, um, whether it be on the on the solas, whether it be on the um, justification by faith alone, imputation, infusion, like whatever the case is, you know, you, you, someone lands the plane and in, invariably there will be someone who reacts and says, well, if you say that, then you're somebody's going to disagree with you and you're going to somehow push them away from the church or they're going to be, you know, concerned about their role in the faith or it's going to be not missional. Again, I keep using this word that somehow it's, you know, this was the whole seeker sensitive movement. Like let's, let's, um, let's make sure that people don't know they're in a church until it's too late or so. I mean, as far as I could tell, that's what the, uh, and I'll never forget. I was listening to a friend of mine who's uh, who had was talking about the influence of a, um, of an old mentor who's now dead of his in the church. And he said, you know, for the first 20 years of my life in mission in ministry, I used to try to convince people that uh, there was nothing um, that when they joined the church, that they wouldn't have to change anything at all. You know, that there was nothing that they had to believe that there's nothing that they had to lay down that it would just come on, you know, the water's fine. And he said, well, that was the first 20 years. And he's like the last 30 years, I actually switched my uh, tune and said, Actually, it will kill you and make everything. You new. <laughs> That's right. Like this, this is don't even look at, don't even point, don't even point at this church. Uh, that's a spinal tap. Spinal tap, tap nice. But um, wow. don't even look at this unless you are at least considering the fact that everything you think is going to have to be laid down and submitted to authority or a tradition or to people who are older, wiser, and more, um, uh, you know, than you are. At least that's what Joshua tells the people at Shechem, right? Like your witnesses against yourself that you got involved with this God who has laws and rules and standards. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And that's what's so comforting, though. I mean, I told you, I've said this before, I think, you know, when I was, I grew up in the charismatic church and I loved it. Um, it's a wonderful, you know, I have very few negative associations with it. And my parents had gone through already their like reform stage through Francis Schaeffer and kind of had come out of that by the time I was born. So it's this interesting mix of like, well, two of the three streams at the very least were charismatic and evangelical. Um, but I, the experience that I had with it in, in late high school and early college was that there were no boundaries at all. You know, it was like, well, God is, you know, let's talk, sit and have a Bible study and, and sort of wonder about who God may or may not be. Um, and that was under the auspices of a Christian Bible study. And so when I ran into the, as it were, the tradition and even learned things like the, the, um, the Nicene Creed, I was like, this is so wonderful. It's so wonderfully bound, you know, give me some, 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 uh, some, a framework within which I can work, you know, that I can actually begin to, to, as it were, um, have some freedom of movement, knowing that I'm not making this up entirely uh, on my own. And I think, I think going forward, you know, that the ACNA, I mean, again, we've said this before, I think the bones are strong enough. I think that there were enough people involved in the foundation and our formularies, as it were, and the constitution, when they are articulated clearly enough, are strong enough and clear enough to to cut through some of this, um, the cloud of unknowing, you know, the famous mystic <laughs> Bible from the, from the Middle Ages, um, that that if we can just reiterate the basis of the Jerusalem Declaration, like reiterate the 39 articles, like just read the 39 articles to people. You know, I read through like article nine through 13 with respect to original sin. We were doing Mark seven this past week, you know, it's just started with original sin, um, justification, uh, you know, good works after justification. And I just read through them. It was like, you know, some of these, some of these, none of you may understand what this is about. Some of you might be getting upset about this. Like, that's all fine. This is part of the, part of the work, but, 
this is our church. This is where we are. And it's a wonderful gift that we have been given that people gave their lives for. You know, I mean, people forget that Martyr, uh, Cranmer died over his disagreement with the quote unquote real presence in the Eucharist. You know, I mean, again, we can talk about how that's understanding and how we can understand it. But but he considered that sufficient enough to give his life for, as did Ridley and, and Latimer and I mean, a host of other reformers. And for us to say, well, you know, they might have just been a little too intent, um, intense and, and um, you know, caught up in their own issues is uh, quite a presumptuous thing to say. And so I, for one, am comfortable to, at the very least, defer to the fact that maybe they knew something I didn't. Maybe they saw something like the Apostle Paul. I mean, which of us would look at circumcision in Galatia and say, well, that's worth potentially dividing a church over? You know, I, I wouldn't have unless he had led the way for that. And so, you know, when I'm tempted to say um, any of these people in the past were uh, too hot-headed or too, um, too intent on one thing, well, then I'm gratefully at this point brought back up short by a sense of gratitude to the lineage and the patronage and the history that we've inherited. And so we're, we're passionate defenders of that. I don't know what else to say. You know, it's not that we don't welcome people into ACNA, but we welcome something, people into something that is not, in fact, a Janus face or a wax nose, as Paul's all famously put in his uh, Protestant face of Anglicanism book, which is also a good read. Um, but that it is not something that we are given the freedom to simply create, but we are something that we can uh, republish afresh in every generation. But that requires an understanding of what has come before. This is a discussion about what? identifies someone as an Anglican traditionally and not that is not a discussion about what identifies someone as a Christian because because we recognize yes. the, the, the Christian tradition is broader than the Anglican tradition so um, so you, we can we can look at our Baptist brother who believes in Jesus Christ and who who rests in his finished work and say, you know, he's our brother. We can look at the person even who we would disagree with, who calls himself an Anglican, but also seems really, really just like a Baptist in Anglican garb. And we can say he's our misguided brother in, in, the, in, the, in the Anglican church. Uh, ultimately, with all these discussions, ultimately, we can be thankful that, that when uh, Christ returns or we all uh, gather, um, gather in heaven, and Jesus corrects the Baptists and the Presbyterians because he really is Anglican. That we will one day all be one. That's right. And the truth will point out. He's like, you weren't supposed to use wine. It was sherry. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and the, the heavenly worship service will be cassock and surplus. It was in Oregon. Well, amen to that. We are gospel people. That is, well, literally good news. Uh, that is going to be all the time that we have this week. We do appreciate your listening. If you want to keep the conversation going, please be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes or send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon and Lord Willing. We'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Standing firm.